Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. John Askinus is assistant professor of politics at Catholic University of America and non-resident senior fellow at the Lincoln Network. And he's here with me today to discuss his new and still ongoing series in The New Atlantis, one of my favorite publications and one that I've been very happy to have a few pieces in myself, um, which he, uh, you know, headlines essentially as a, a, por- a postmortem on reality or on consensus reality. So it really um, taps into a number of themes that I've been very interested in and have myself made an attempt to, or made several attempts to, to make sense of, but I think he's doing a really bang up job of it. So uh, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. I'm a uh, longtime listener, first time caller of Outsider Theory. Excellent. Well, yeah, so, you know, perhaps we can tie this into some previous conversations I've had, but, um, you know, on on related issues. But, you know, in general, just to start out, I'd like to um, just say briefly, you know, what what I think is important about this series and, you know, to to kind of uh, define, I I guess, my take on that as simply as possible, which is that, you know, this whole post-truth or post-reality kind of analysis you know, took off basically around 2017. And we know that it was highly politically motivated um, around, you know, these kind of traumatized liberal pundits basically trying to make sense of, of what had happened. And, um, you know, one of the things that one of, one of its, one of the many um, flaws of this um, discourse as it's, as it's mostly existed is that it, it really flattens everything before that in various ways. So it, it has an extremely oversimplified and weak account of essentially everything that led up to somewhere around 2015, 2016. <laughs> and so, you know, one of the things you're doing in this series and not the only thing you're doing in this series is, is trying to provide um, an analysis that, you know, um, offers a much more nuanced and historically rich set of the whole series of developments over the past several decades that kind of set us up for what's, what's been defined as this, this post-truth and post-reality moment. So, I mean, that's, I guess, you know, there are many ways that I would criticize a lot of the commentary on this um subject i'm I'm curious if you know in terms of your coming to this project you know what were the thing what were the sort of uh what did you see as missing in the analysis um you know i I suggested one thing which i think you're doing a great job of kind of trying to combat which is this kind of historical shallowness and and myopia but i'm I'm curious what else you know what, what other deficits in this discourse kind of prompted you to take this on yeah, that's great, Jeff. And the project certainly builds on the work of a number of, of folks, um, often on the right, who are who are sort of sort of people talk about the kind of the critical turn in in, in conservative thinking. And I, I think this is in some ways a part of that project. Though I maybe uh, uh, dissents on a few minor points. I think the two, the two the two things I think thought I had something to to contribute to, and the reason I thought it was really important to take 
a lot of time to make this it's a you know it's going to be a kind of seven or seven or eight installment series uh to to lay this all out there were, were two things the first was a kind of phenomenological point it seemed to me that the kind of the most interesting and most important thing about this that had gone on said was how how pervasive this feeling of everyone has lost their mind is it, you know it's, it's it's almost anyone you talk to will say of at least to other people including not just public figures but people they personally know you know they've, they've gone crazy we talk about trump derangement syndrome on the left um folks on the on the left will speak of the Fox News destroying the, you know, giving their older relatives brain worms. There is this sort of sense of, of unreality and uncanniness about that. But also, I think what was missing was how, how much fun it is, how much more interested in politics people are than they have been historically. If you look at the polling data, uh, as well as the ratings for political TV shows. Um, so there seemed to be something, a kind of phenomenological angle of what does it feel like to be going through this that was kind of missing. The second was is the, the much larger historical trend. You know, I think there's this kind of, um, I suppose I'm sort of anti-anti uh, this idea that, you know, it's, it's all the same, that we all, everyone lives in times of change. So when, when you go through a major transition like this, the transition, I'm, I argue in the series, from kind of electronic age or print age media space to a digital one, the first instinct is, is to, to react and say, oh, you know, everything is, is unprecedented, unprecedented times. Uh, it's all changed. And then the second instinct, which is a healthy one, is to say, actually, there's more continuity, more, more his, historicity here. Some of these trends are longer, et cetera. But I think in this case, we need to actually reckon with how unusual and unprecedented and deep the changes we're going through really are. Um, and if you go back and you read very carefully folks like Marshall McLuhan, you see that they foresaw the rise of this sort of global cybernetic information space as a kind of a, a pivotal moment, not just in, in since the history of the printing press, but really since the invention of the alphabet. You know, the, the idea that every single human is, is networked into a singular information space really is actually unprecedented. And I think it's one of those transitions that we actually aren't spending enough energy talking about. So those are the kind of the very micro and very macro uh, motivations for me to write this series. Yeah, um, I mean, in this... Uh introductory essay for the series, you begin by referring to a technological reordering of social reality, unlike any before encountered and an accompanying civilizational shift not seen in 500 years. So I assume here with 500 years and, you know, kind of picking up on the McLuhan reference here, you're essentially referring back to the print revolution. Um, so this, you know, wasn't an entirely unfamiliar idea, particularly in the kind of early period of often very enthusiastic uh, celebrations of the internet, right? That, that this is kind of the, the, next, um, the next big shift, um, you know, after Gutenberg. And, you know, I, I guess, you know, I'm kind of curious, um, obviously one, you know, one thing that, I, that I've wrote about for the new Atlantis actually was this kind of, um, you know, I wrote about what I call the new net delusion, which is basically that, you know, there was kind of this complete inversion of popular kind of common net where it went from being this kind of delusional optimism to being this delusion. Period, I'd say peaking around the time of the Arab Spring, where 
you know, th there was really this idea that, um, you know, just as in the, the early modern period with the Gutenberg, um, you know, sort of print revolution, you had this kind of democratization of knowledge, which enabled, you know, people like uh, the Reformation theologians and the humanists of the Renaissance and so on to challenge the existing authorities, right? And sort of set it. And, and of course, you also had the emergence of, of networks of, of scientists and the first scientific publications. Um, you know, you had Galileo printing his, um, you know, kind of reports on his experiments and observations. And so, you know, you essentially had this revolution in both knowledge, you know, production and consumption. And at the same time, this, uh, you know, this uh, democratizing force that, you know, essentially made it difficult for, you um, you know, ruling elites, you know, whether monarchs or ecclesiastical authorities to maintain a monopoly on knowledge and information, right? And so essentially, you know, somewhere around, uh, again, I'd say the, the, the sort of mainstream, you know, you've started seeing this in the 90s with all of these kind of you know, kind of woozy and enthusiastic uh, manifestos and declarations about um, cyberspace and so on. Um, and then, you know, the sort of traction of, the, of this in, in mainstream commentary, I would say kind of reached its peak around the 2011, 2012 period. Hey, and basically Twitter, Twitter in the Arab Spring. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, it sort of picked up really around the Obama election, I guess, which I think we'll come back to in relation to your discussion of Stewart, uh, of John Stewart. But, you know, it, it, um, so it was really this moment where, you know, the, so it was harking back 500 years, but it was saying, okay, we're going to, um, you know, we're going to now experience the same kind of revolution, right? Now, you know, one thing that was sort of interesting was it was, it was generally focused on like these, you know, uh, dour autocracies in other parts of the world that people wanted to uh, um, see brought down. But of course, um, you know, the, it, it was somewhat vaguer in terms of how it was supposed to impact the West itself, right? The, the sort of um, Western capitalist core. And so, you know, fast forward some years, uh, some, I mean, I'd say the, the, sh the sort of vibe shift around this basically happens 2016, 2017, although it sort of begins, I'd say, with phenomena like Gamergate, which, you know, is a whole other conversation, but, you know, it, it and then, you know, this is why, like, all these people will now, you know, you, you still people, you still see people saying on Twitter, like, you know, if only we had stopped Gamergate, we could have stopped every, you know, we like Putin would never have invaded Ukraine or things like this. Um, but, but, you know, it's, it's, um, so that's sort of seen as the watershed of like the bad, the bad, bad internet freedom. But interestingly, what happens is in a sense, like a lot of these terms get inverted where, you know, actually, you know, before the idea was we need this kind of Gutenbergian overthrowing of gatekeepers and of, you know, um, monopoly information channels and things like that. And then essentially the whole thing just flips and it's like, actually, we, no, we, we need these gatekeepers. We, we need to um, restore the monopoly on these information channels and we need to remake the internet so that it functions more, you know, more like 
previous information regimes, right? We need to make it more um, subject to centralized control. Um, we need to essentially turn these, um, you know, the, the sort of fang companies or whatever into these kind of regulated monopolies, right? That, that are essentially, um, you know, subject to all kinds of uh, restrictions on, you know, what they can uh, publish, you know, although the whole question of whether they're publishers or not is, you know, part of the debate. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm just trying to, this is sort of the way I discourse as well as this kind of vibe shift that, that I think drove the shift in discourse. And, you know, obviously on some level, this is a question of power, right? Because it was a question of who um, stood to gain politically from this new information system. Um, and, you know, it turned out that the people who stood to gain politically from it were not necessarily the, <laughs> the ones that, uh, of the people heralding these transformations thought. Um, so, you know, <clears throat> that's just kind of a, a somewhat long-winded recap of some of my own thoughts. That's right. And, and I published on this, this trajectory, but I'm curious, you know, how do you come at it from a similar perspective or, you know, how have you kind of seen those shifts in the. In I, the I think my, my goal is sort of to, to get, to push us to the next step. You know, what you have, you have the kind of irrational, um, utopianism, and then it reverses into this sort of equally irrational um, pessimism. But that pessimism and utopianism is still kind of along the same axis, right? What you basically are dealing with are the kind of dreams of global unity that were behind the sort of television era. And actually, you can see going all the way back to the telegraph, that we would all sort of be knit together into a, a global village. Um, although, of course, McLuhan was much more ambivalent about what a global village would look like. Um, but what you find out is that the, the medium has a, has a mind of its own, so to speak. It has an influence of its own. You know, what's, what's remarkable about the printing press analogy are, are two things. One, you know, when, when people made that analogy, what they had in mind was just enlightenment. You know, information freer equals enlightenment. They didn't have in mind the 30 years war, the rise of the Westphalian state system, absolutism, the connection to sort of, you know, Western, like, you know, global expansion and colonialism, all those things were also effects of the printing press, but those weren't mentioned in, you know, Wired magazine in the early nineties. Um, the other thing though, is, is that the, the, the most pervasive and important effects tend not to be, tend to be things that are extremely difficult to imagine when you're, you're within the mindset of the previous era. So I'll give you a kind of example. Um, you know, the Founders Fund Manifesto famously says something along the lines of, uh, we wanted flying cars, we got 140 characters. And yeah, I think that 140 characters is much, much more powerful, much more difficult to understand than flying cars. You can go back and find, you know, science fiction from the late 1800s with basically flying cars uh, and, or, you know, science fiction books, science fiction uh, sort of engravings or prints. And what's remarkable about them is, the, the technology doesn't look that different from how it will work, work today. You know, it's a car, it flies, it's pretty simple. But the society around that technology is completely uh, unidentifiable, right? You know, men and women in a Duardian dress, you know, court, you know courting each other in an Edwardian way, families with small children, uh, the sort of French, you know, Brit European empires of the early 20th century. You know, the, that world is totally shattered. Um, and, you know, for the for the for the science fiction author, like a Jules Verne type, it's much harder to imagine the social and political changes that will happen than to imagine the, the sort of technological advances. 
So in a similar way, um, what I'm trying to do with the series is to point, begin to point us towards the social and political and economic implications of these changes that sort are sort of orthogonal to the, the battles that we're currently having. So this reminds me of a movie I just rewatched or, or some of your comments just now remind me of a movie I just rewatched, which is Independence Day. <laughs> Fantastic <laughs> movie. A great movie. Definitely recommend people uh, go back to it. So, you know, in, in one of your pieces, you discuss um, three movies that, you know, come a little bit after that the matrix um fight club and american beauty which i think we can get to a bit later but um you know what what struck me just now when when you um when you brought up uh you know this dream of the kind of unified global reality right um stitched together through information technology going back to the telegraph is that you know, essentially, this is still a movie of the TV era in a sense, right? It, it's it's very Absolutely. focused on, you know, really this, uh, you know, the, the climactic moment is the speech by the president, right? Um, which, you know, is, is interesting in various ways. Uh, but, you know, in, in which essentially he announces the coming of this new global polity, right? Because, which it, which is essentially a kind of realized American imperium, uh, you know, the dr- the great dream of the kind of globalists of the '90s, right? Whether neocons or, or other factions. So, of course, it took you know massive destruction of, of major cities worldwide by aliens to to bring this about. But the thing that uh, strikes me in that uh, um, sequence now is so you know it's it's very much this television speech, and yet. He is, you know, tell the whole the television networks. In fact, this is a, a crucial part of the beginning, which is that Jeff Goldblum, right, who's the one who um, the scientist who some, who figures out how to upload a virus into the alien's computer, um, which mysteriously, you know, even though they have shields protecting them from nuclear weapons, they they have apparently no security on their computer systems. <laughs> um, but but in any case, um, you know, he. So Goldblum actually works for a cable, you know, despite being this genius scientist, for whatever reason, he works for a cable company, right? And so, in fact, one of the first things that gets disrupted by the aliens before they've even, you know, descended uh, to Earth is, um, you know, satellite TV, right? And so, in fact, the the disruption of this, um, you know, interestingly, the the disruption of the kind of um, global, you know, uh, image-based um, sort of mediated reality um, that that TV creates in this kind of high period of of its of its dominance as a technology is you know is is sort of immediately dissolved by the aliens. But what happens? Well, basically at the end, all these or or not at the but to, you know towards the end and and leading up to the climactic battle, you know basically all of these different. Um, groups who are now collaborating right all these formerly enemy nations that are now you know you see israelis and arabs uh you know fighting together and stuff like that but how are they communicating with each other well actually through morse code right so they, <laughs> all, all their other communication systems have been destroyed so they've returned to morse code which again the aliens are apparently incapable of of uh, disrupting or um or interpreting and so, you know, it, it's it's very much what you um, what I, I think it 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 illustrates that point beautifully, right? That there is a kind of unified um, dream going back to the origins of communication technology that um, 
that these kind of um, or or that this kind of global unity can be forged by it, right? Absolutely, um, and that's that's the one of the, you know, the overarching theme of the, the the series is that 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 dream is is dead, right? That we now know that's not that's not what the internet is going to look like. It's not how it works. Uh, that we are that the kind of consensus reality that was stitched together by you know, first national and then ultimately global mass media broadcast systems is gone. Uh, and now we need to, we need to develop institutions to live in that new reality. And one of the interesting kind of evidence, so the, the, the first piece in the series begins with this observation I had, um, you know, the, at, at the 20th anniversary of 9-11, which was last September, which was that I had no idea how to explain television to my kids. Like I could explain everything, like the politics of it, I mean, my day job, I'm kind of international relations scholar I, politics of it what it felt like the you know, the, the motives the terrorists all, all that was very explicable but i had no idea how to explain the feeling of television the feeling of kind of watching the same thing the idea of everyone watching the same thing at the same time that if you didn't see it at that time you weren't going to see it and i think one of the things one of the reasons why we have this sort of this sort of veil of ignorance that's been drawn over uh the era immediately preceding the internet is that we've very rapidly forgotten how that technology worked and what it felt like and the kind of culture that it created. Um, and one remarkable problem this has led to is that we are, we are applying television era norms and ideas and solutions to a new problem. So, you know, when I, when I hear people talking about misinformation, disinformation, I hear them speaking the language of kind of television, you know, keep, keep, the, keep the propaganda off the broadcast type deal. Um, and the interesting evidence for this is, is that all of these, all of these movies and analyses, which today seem extremely, uh, befitting like the matrix, like the work of Baudrillard is television era. And I think actually Chuck Klosterman has a new book out the nineties, which is excellent on this point of how kind of infected, how, how much we have forgotten what television was like in the kind of culture and mass media environment that it created. Um, and that's the ultimate context for why the internet emerged in the way that it did. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I often think about this as well in terms of nine 11 and, you know, the way that it um, it's it, yeah. And, and I think about it in terms of these other events, right. That have happened since and the way that it often seems like there's an attempt to kind of create or to construe it. I mean, I am thinking here of like for the January, I mean, January 6th itself, but then also the January 6th hearings, there is some kind of attempts to construe these events as somehow, you know, uh, something that can provide a similar effect to something like 9-11. You know, just anecdotally, um, you know, I've, I've known of people who, um, I'll just uh, <laughs> be explicit about it. So my girlfriend has, has some like older friends who are maybe not quite boomers, but kind of older Gen X or a bit beyond and who... Um, you know, at some point recently kind of scolded her for not watching the um the hearings right and and sort of uh, basically you know one of these people kind of implied that she had a civic duty to do this right and that that she was kind of um not uh, performing her her you know or not living up to her civic responsibilities so i think you know this is very much um or this idea right that there there's a civic responsibility to watch the January 6 hearings seems very reflective of that paradigm to me. Absolutely. Right? It is it's it's the television era paradigm not not just understood in terms of the the technology but also the kind of economics of television. You know, television in the 80s and 90s 
was able, especially amidst increasing competition from like satellite news, was able to maintain its currency by by sort of focusing on these these big stories. And then that big story would dominate the news for weeks. And it was great, right? Because you, you got people to watch the evening broadcast. You got people to watch news magazine specials like Dateline. You got people to watch the morning, the, you know, the morning news. Um, it, it, you could feed a whole ecosystem with it. And so you have things like the OJ Simpson, you know, the, the chase and the trial and the trial. You have the Lacey Peterson disappearance, uh, Chandra Levy, um, these these events which are going to be like totally inexplicable to someone who didn't live through it. Um, and then, of course, the, the, the big the big kahuna of all of these was the uh, the Clinton impeachment and the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Um, and people at the time criticized the media. I mean, this is the big criticism of the media is that you're turning it into a TV show. And what's remarkable is that that criticism hasn't really changed. In fact, just the other day on his new show, uh, The Problem with John Stewart, John Stewart leveled this charge at the media about the Mueller investigation. But the problem is, just like TV, the problem isn't that just that there's, they've made it into a TV show. Because that's always been true of television. Says no one's watching the show or no one's watching the same show. I mean, what you're seeing with the January 6th committee hearings is an attempt to use the kind of grammar of television one last time for basically a boomer audience. Uh, I mean, down to like, you know, it's funny that they, they talked about when they set the hearings, they set them as quote unquote prime time hearings. We don't have prime time anymore. If you don't have television. You don't have prime time. <laughs> you don't have a point at which you sit down to watch the television, right? Unless that's still your habit. And so that's resulted in this sort of fragmentary media environment where for people above the age of like 50, maybe it is sort of functioning the way that it used to function. But under the age of 50, regardless of your politics, you're just not engaging with the hearings in that way. Right. And, you know, again, this um, this kind of demand, this moral demand, right, on the part of, you know, I'd say people who kind of came through that era and who, you know, I think who also who's kind of um, ideal, you know, who, who have basically um, consumed this whole discourse that has appeared in the past several years, which I alluded to before, that's, you know, very much this kind of rose tinted view of the era of consensus reality, right? Where, absolutely, you know, basically, um, and again, so I, I think the reason why there's this idea that there's a civic duty is that, I mean, cur- there's a correct perception that, you know, these kind of older civic ideals were inseparable from the way that the technologies of the time constructed a consensus reality. Um, well, it's, and a yeah, very, and it's you know, very interesting and it's yeah. a very the very broadcast era idea, this notion that you have a duty as a citizen to be, quote, informed, an informed citizen. Um, and that, that, that I think that reflects a number of different things. On the one hand, that reflects the kind of creating demand for these products, right? If you're an informed citizen, then you buy a newspaper or read the newspaper, you watch the news, you listen to the radio. So it creates demand for media. Uh, but then it's also something that's encouraged by policy and, and by being encouraged also helps create this sort of national consensus reality where even if you disagree politically on what to do, the policy, you actually, you're, you're absorbing the same narrative as everyone else. Um, many people don't realize this, but the so-called fairness doctrine uh, that the FCC, the first thing it did wasn't to establish this notion of kind of telling both sides of the story, but it was actually to um, require that radio and then later TV broadcasters have a news broadcast, that they carry the events of the day. That was actually a requirement for their FCC licenses. Um, and that world is just gone, 
right? You don't need to. And there's a weird way in which that that ideal of informed citizenship is actually can might actually be counterproductive today, in the specific sense that this desire to in, in a world of kind of a fragmented media landscape, if you feel this sort of duty to inform yourself on the issues of the day, but all of your news is coming from one, uh, you know, part of this media landscape, one of these one of these bespoke realities or alternative realities, we call them in the series, then actually you're actually fragmenting the body politic. You're not bringing it together the way you used to. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, so, you know, let's pick up on the bespoke or alternate realities notion. I mean, so I think part of the point again about this idea of a civic duty to like watch these January 6th hearings is is kind of, you know, it, it's also, you know, d- despite my like on one hand kind of laughing at, you know, just laughing at this when I, when my girlfriend told me somebody had told her this, but at the same time, like, again, there are some interesting insights because I think the other kind of implicit insight there is that, you know, consensus reality isn't something that simply exists, right? It's something that you have to actively participate in, in making Absolutely. and remaking, right? And, and kind of, and so the fact that, you know, as, as we know from kind of the iconography and the, you know, accounts of maybe our parents or grandparents of like the high television era when it really came into its own, you know, there are all these kind of rituals associated with it, right? We could argue there was a kind of religious dimension to it, right? It was, mm-hmm. it was really this, um, you know, th- th- this ritualized, synchronized behavior, right, that involved, um, you know, essentially, yeah, doing the same things at the same time. And and thus, even as society became more sort of atomized into smaller family units and sort of, um, you know, separate suburban households rather than kind of tightened in neighborhoods, you know, this was kind of how the fabric of, of a shared reality was held together through these sort yes. of ritual actions, right? So, you know, then on this, on this, um, in this new paradigm that you, you, um, are characterizing here, you know, similarly, there is a, an active making of reality going on. And this, you know, I think is something that a lot of the accounts miss, right? Which, which essentially, you know, what you find, I mean, in this sort of misinformation discourse and so on is this idea that, you know, essentially people are passive consumers and, you know, they're just kind of fed these things and they mindlessly absorb them and then, you know, th- then they're misinformed, right? And th- this is at least one kind of mm-hmm. common way these these ideas are construed. So in the first, um, or the, the second piece, the first kind of um, longer piece in the series after the initial introductory essay, you discuss, um, I mean, which is called Reality is Just a Game Now. You discuss this in terms of a sort of, you know, basically these kind of participatory forms of gaming, right? Or of, of gameplay that, you know, are, are extremely popular in, in various contexts, but that you argue, you know, if we want to understand the nature of this kind of fragmented, this reality that's been fragmented into bespoke or alternative realities, um, we have to think about how people are actively participating in their construction, right? Absolutely. So, so the, oh, yeah. No, just, um, you know, maybe... I, I just kind of wanted to introduce that point, but, you know, uh, take it away as far as just maybe trying to summarize this argument and bring out some examples of it. Yeah. So in 20, around 2018, 2019, as QAnon was sort of coming into more of a mainstream awareness, 
there are a number of, of folks in the world of role-playing games, particularly of alternative reality games, who, who saw a deep similarity between what they do for fun and QAnon, um, the way that you know, there, there are any number of ways of kind of falling down the rabbit hole and the problems of ARGs of, of becoming enticed that there's a kind of deeper reality that you're being called to investigate or invited to investigate of sort of working together via online communities, via you know, forums, YouTube channels, uh, Twitch streams to, uh, to piece the puzzle together, to you know, do the research um, and a mixture of kind of online and offline activity to the, in the service of kind of telling a bigger story, right? And in this case, overseen by a game master. So Q would leave these sort of these Q drops, I think they call them, uh, these little posts of varying, you know, some of them more substantive, some of them very short and cryptic. And then the QAnon community would sort of interpret these, they would sort of follow the clues. And, and the work that they would do is very elaborate, right? They would use, you know, uh, geocoding data and uh Twitter threads and, you know, more than anything, uh, sort of leaked, inf- WikiLeaks and leaked information of different kinds to kind of try to piece together this story about how uh, secretly behind the scenes, Trump and the military were working to save the, the country and the world from a kind of ring of Democratic pedophile politicians. And what I, what I noticed in, in that analysis was that with a few obvious caveats that seem to actually just describe the entire media landscape. So if you, you know, if you reduced, if you reduce what was going on, not to this weird esoteric story, but to the kind of, the the kind of incentives and activities that were going into it, it was just clear that that QAnon was just an extreme version of what we all do now, right? We, we, we try to make sense of, of a world in which information flows at us through a fire hose. We have sources that we trust or don't trust. If we're particularly interested, we get involved in talking about it, principally online and on Twitter and on group group chats or DMs. Uh, there are kind of influencers who, who posit different, who help 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 tell the story. They help. They maybe will, will shed some grace on you by retweeting a tweet that you you've made or or others. You know, so there's a kind of participatory communal aspect to it. Um, and when you look at it that way. And, and all that it really takes to form this kind of incentive, I argue, is you know, really three things. Powerful stories that weave together logically independent, compelling ideas that are already accepted by a substantial percentage of the community, really regardless of how true they are. And I talk in the, in the, in the essay about the way that, that truth or fact-checking operates in this context. Two kind of forums for presenting evidence or solving puzzles or advancing the narrative. And then three tools like Google or other search engines for kind of gathering facts. And the underlying change that's, that's made this possible is the superabundance of facts, right? You can find a fact uh, to support pretty much any position on any topic. Um, and those facts are more and more accessible via more and more powerful search engines. And so these three, three things together kind of reorient, they, they take all of the incentives for reality building away from pushing towards a single consensus model and towards creating alternative realities or bespoke realities. Um, so that's, that's the underlying argument is sort of look, teasing out this connection between the world of RPGs, role-playing games and alternative reality games and the kind of media landscape today. I mean, I think one of the most interesting parts of this would be that... <laughs> 
you know, in a sense that an implication would be, um, and, you know, it'd be interesting to maybe tease out a couple examples of this, that, you know, the, the very people who are most sort of horrified by something like QAnon are in, in sort of behavioral terms are not acting all that differently, right? In the terms, in terms of how they construct their sense of reality. Is that, would you say that's I mean, not, not only is that or, uh, fair, I think it's undeniable, yeah. <laughs> right? Like if yeah. at a structural level, so I mean, the, the kind of the, the, the other piece of the puzzle here is you do have this sort of ongoing back and forth between people whose power and wealth and prestige is advanced by moving away from kind of traditional gatekeepers and the kind of value of those gatekeepers. But what, one thing that you're seeing, right, is that those gatekeepers with the move from advertising-based model where you really want to appeal to a general audience to a subscription-based model where you're, you, your revenue depends on finding, kind of finding and maintaining a niche of loyal customers. Even the incentives of, of you know, prestigious outfits like the New York Times, the Washington Post, NPR are pulled very steadily in one direction. Um, you know, this is the same process that gets you from the learning channel hosting, you know, video, how-to videos on boat safety to like toddlers and tiaras. It's the same, the same structural principle. Yeah. So, I mean, I suppose one, um, or, or perhaps the most obvious, I mean, something I, someone I wrote about who I think is kind of an interesting example of this is, have you ever followed um, Seth Abramson? I have. I, I think of him often in this context. Yeah. <laughs> so Seth Abramson, I wrote a piece about him because he, in relation to his involvement with this um, sort of academic and arts movement called metamodernism, which, which people can check out on the on the blog, but on outsider theory, but, um, you know, he, I'll just try to, uh, recap his career for those unfamiliar. So he, um, he first came to my awareness, uh, in, I think 2016, because I knew many people who were, you know, Bernie Sanders dieharders. I, I personally voted for Bernie Sanders in the, in the primary that year, but, um, you know, I, I think, it was, it was a very, it was, it was one of the first, you know, the, the phenomenon that you evoke kind of at the, at the outset of the series, right. It was one of these first yep. times where I saw this kind of splitting because I myself had voted for Bernie Sanders in that election. Um, but then immediately after he, you know, was essentially edged out and, you know, without getting into the details of, of how that happened or, you know, what, whether there was any, whether there were dirty tricks involved, you know, um, immediately all these other kind of diehard people I knew, including friends on Facebook and things like that, started sharing, among other things, these posts by Seth Abramson, where I think basically initially before Bernie had sort of officially, you know, conceded defeat or whatever, he, you know, um, did this series of posts that supposedly proved that Bernie Sanders was actually winning the Democratic nomination, contrary to what all of the major you know, media outlets were saying, which is that his, you know, he had no chance, right? So Abramson for a while was kind of pushing this idea that he, you know, was still on track to win and that the, the major media outlets were, were just in denial. And then of course that didn't pan out and uh, he, he ended up sort of, um, you know, essentially furnishing a lot of material that was then used to, um, 
to claim that, you know, that, that Hillary's uh, primary victory had been illegitimate and so on. So without getting into the details of that, then, you know, basically immediately after Trump wins, he becomes a major sort of an early Russiagate person, I think pretty much already in, in late, you know, immediately after the, the uh, general election, he's, he's on this beat and, you know, he ends up writing a couple of books that, I mean, despite being a sort of obscure professor of poetry of like creative writing. And then he, um, you know, basically had this, you know, one of these kind of unpaid blogs at the Huffington post where he was writing these Bernie Sanders things, but then, you know, he actually is elevated to pretty significant, I mean, he, he gains a lot of followers uh, because of his Russiagate material. And in, in fact, I think he publishes a couple of books with the like big five mainstream publisher on this. And he's, I mean, I haven't, I think he blocked me a while ago for some reason. Um, but he, So I haven't been able to follow his career, at least on Twitter for a while. But, you know, he had a huge explosion of, of follower growth. Um, and, you know, he was really, uh, he became a kind of revered authority for many kind of liberals who were obsessed with Russiagate. And so, you know, he's, he's an interesting figure in terms of this, this set of parallels, because if you just look at his career, I mean, and, and the, here's the point that I'll, I'll, I'll follow this up with that goes back to what I wrote about him, which is that, you know, in a sense, if you read his, his, his writings, when he's kind of this obscure uh, theorist of creative writing or something like that, um, and, you know, writes these kind of art manifestos, you know, essentially, he's kind of um, making the case for exactly this, for the, exactly the approach that he ends up taking, which is this combination of this kind of, um, you know, postmodern project of, of constructing, uh, an alternative reality that, that combats the, the sort of, uh, consensus realities being promulgated by the authoritative institutions, but, but that it's, it's actually motivated by this sincere desire for the, you know, by this kind of affective sincerity and, and, you know, desire for social justice and so on. So, you know, that's kind of how he defines this metamodernism that it, it's not just postmodern irony because it's actually driven by this, you know, sincere political commitment. And yet it's, you know, explicitly kind of um, framed around constructing alternative realities. Now, of course, ironically, you know, his Russiagate work, and he's, of course, only one of many who pick up the, this beat um, because it met such a need for certain um, sectors of the public that, you know, he, he but he's able to, um, you know, really create something that, that became um, indistinguishable from a lot of what was being promulgated by the sort of mainstream sources that he, in his earlier kind of combative, you know, pro Bernie Sanders phase saw himself as opposed to. Um, but, but essentially in many ways, his narrative sort of merges with theirs. And of course, as I mentioned, he gets a couple of uh, major book deals for it. So he might be an interesting, you know, figure for this whole um, phenomenon you're describing. Absolutely. And it's interesting to see in his career, too, the kind of network, uh, the incentives of the institutions he worked with, right? Um, like, and I think his book was published by like St. Martin's Press and it's a New York Times bestseller. Because even if you're, you know, if you're, in, one of the ways that this works is you'll have, 
you know, the, the other thing I liked about that I thought was important in this analysis was to kind of point to the kind of ecosystem of information that produces this. Because too much of the analysis just focuses on particular people or particular platforms, and it, it really misses the bigger picture, right? So, you know, you could think of you could think of what's going on here in part as as something they say is true of like marijuana, which is for every kind of you know regular user who who for him it's not that essential, and for every ten of those. There's one someone someone who's like a super user, right? You can view you can view the the influencer as a kind of super user of social media. There's someone for whom the the pull of the dopamine that's produced by being validated by legions of people online is just unbelievable, right? Um, and when you when you're when you're principal of 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 what you're taking is true or the narrative you're putting out there is basically determined even at a subconscious level by how, what the kind of reaction it will evoke, then you, you sort of pursue that. My friend, Adam Elkis talks about speed running the language game that, you know, because, because the internet doesn't at all or only barely sort of penalizes you for saying things that aren't really true or, or are questionably true. Then the, the kind of the evolutionary equilibrium is that it's people who learn to just, say the best thing for the language game, the game that they're playing online and not without regard to whether it's true or not, or only, you know, uh, you know, taking into account the, the penalty cost of something that might not be completely true. But this doesn't just affect those influencers, right? It also affects legacy institutions. So the New York Times, for instance, has the analytics to prove that subscriptions uh, shoot up when it's doing certain kinds of coverage of, of, the, you know, the, of the Mueller investigation, that these are loyal readers, their conversion rates very high, they stay stick around. And so what does it do? Well, it puts more reporters on the beat. And it doesn't have to it doesn't have to compromise its journalistic standards to still pull reality for its subscribers in one direction. Um, I think I think we make much too much of sort of the role of, of fact checking and journalistic standards and whatnot, because um, that really is kind of incidental to the underlying fracturing of reality uh, that's taking place. Yeah. And I mean, something you just said, you know, made me think of um, a point you mentioned in your uh, third essay, which discusses John Stewart, which maybe we can get into in depth in a minute. Um, but, you know, you point out that one of the innovations of the daily show under Stewart's um, you know, sort of um, highly innovative uh, guidance in the early 2000s. So, you know, one thing that we forget about this television age is that, you know, that there was very little way to archive or keep track of things that people had said at different times um, or, or just, you know, I mean, you mentioned like, you, you just didn't have an obvious or immediate record of all sorts of things you might've seen on TV, right? Um, and in fact, as you mentioned, the channels themselves often recorded over old tapes, right? Um, and so basically a lot of what happened on TV was really this purely ephemeral phenomenon, right? And so one thing that I find kind of interesting and you know, perhaps goes against what, what a lot of people imagined was, is that, you know, would happen is that, you know, as you mentioned on the internet, there's basically no penalty for just being wrong or, you know, just completely changing your tune or so, I mean, and that's, even though there's actually a, a, a strong record, you know, there's a, a, usually an extensive track record of it um, out there. 
And so what you mentioned for Stewart is that he, you know, one of the things he did was he would, he would find all these clips, right? So he would have some politician saying one thing, and then he would show that a year ago, they said the opposite, right? Or, or that they told one audience one thing and another audience the other, right? And so, you know, this, um, and, and I mean, I remember not just Stewart doing this, but I actually have a, a vague memory of some like very early internet kind of spliced videos. Um, mm-hmm. I think I, I, re- I remember somebody showing me, this is like very vague, but around the time of the 2000 election, I actually remember somebody showing me a video where Al Gore in the first part was sort of talking about, you know, how many, how many of his love, you know, family members and friends he had lost to like lung cancer because of smoking and stuff like that. And then some (laughs) other speech where he was in, you know, speaking to some farmers in Tennessee and saying like, you know, we in Tennessee love tobacco and blah, blah, blah. So it, you know, this, um, I guess this initial innovation where you could kind of hold people to their words and, and reveal inconsistencies in a way that would have been harder to do before, I I think made people believe that, you know, this, this kind of archive created by the internet would be an effective way of kind of, um, of kind of exposing the hypocrisies of politicians and show and, and forcing them to um, own up to their, lies and so on right and of course we know that you know some and and everybody accepts now that something like the opposite of that has happened i mean do you have any thoughts about why that uh why that basic idea turned out to be so wrong yeah well i think i think that period and with the the period of the daily shows with a real greatness especially you know from sort of the say the invasion of the war in, in iraq 2003 uh you know, up through the financial crisis and then kind of peaking in the uh, first Obama term on 2011, 2012. I, what you have in that, that's actually the peak. 2008 was the actual sort of the secular peak of all television consumption. Um, and so I think you have there is this kind of interesting liminal period where you have you have the the technologies of, of digital retrieval and archiving. And The Daily Show is on the absolute sort of bleeding edge of the, the frontier and employing these technologies um, and, co- and, and coming up with the techniques that then pretty much everyone else in news media has adopted for using archival footage to tell these sort of stories. Uh, but so they, so they have the technology, but they're still also in kind of televisual era norms. Politicians still have this aversion to hypocrisy, this desire to present themselves on TV in the best light to everyone. Um, you don't have the same kind of fractured media landscape and it, it, that's, it's only beginning to really take root by the end of this period. And so I think that explains why Junster had this incredible effect that he did. Um, and what, what politicians learn, um, beginning maybe with sort of, I think Sarah Palin is the sort of first politician with a national profile who's in a kind of distinctly post-consensus reality media headspace. Uh, what they learn is that as long as it doesn't hurt your appeal to your audience, then it just doesn't matter um, because it won't have any traction in to, for your audience. And as the media landscape has gotten more fractured, that's more and more true. I mean, I think this is the reason why people just sort of leave old tweets up and they aren't that bothered. If you, you know, the, the kind of classic thing to do now, right, is find some tweet from four or five years ago and, uh, you know, post it with a quote tweet, you know, is this you kind of thing? Um but it doesn't actually work, right? It's, it's, it works for your fractured reality. You'll get lots of, lots of retweets, a lot of engagement from people who agree with you, but it just, it doesn't, it never lands on the other side because people aren't penalized for being wrong in the past. They're penalized 
for not being loyal to or advancing the kind of underlying narrative. And so as long as there's no hypocrisy on that front, then it's not really a mark against them. Yeah. So, I mean, I think as the way you just described it, it shows that, um, you know, that one of the incorrect expectations was somehow that the norms would remain the same right? yes, rather than absolutely. That, um, that the shift in, in technological kind of um, production of reality would also shift norms about norms and expectations around, you know, consistency and so on. Um, and there's this also so this what, paradoxical yeah. kind of almost self-defeating thing where people who are already kind of fully in the thrall of these new incentives try to use, you know, use the norms to achieve their new ends, but that just undermines them, right? So you see this with fact-checking, right? So fact-checking emerges as a way to use digital technology to hold politicians accountable at a time when you could literally say whatever you wanted on TV. And as long as it wasn't super scandalous, people would literally not be able to remember. Um, I mean, when, when John Stewart went on a crossfire and lit Tucker Carlson up, which I talk about in the piece, CNN, in order to get a CNN tape, you literally had to it was by postal mail. You had to send in a, you know, a check with a little bit of money to CNN and they would mail you its copy of the tape. Um, so there was that degree of kind of inaccessibility. And so that's, that's the environment in which fact-checking emerges. But very quickly it becomes a, you know, once social media exists and you have these, the way to kind of tally score in real time, it becomes a, an avenue to do that. And so even if, even without any change amongst the actual fact-checkers, which I'm not convinced is the case, but that's another conversation, um, simply the fact that you've kind of weaponized fact-checking means it's not going to, it's going to have a short half-life in terms of the underlying norm maintaining the power that it once did. Yeah. I, I'm um, <clears throat> now recalling this weird uh, phenomenon where um, after, I think right after 2016, these Hillary diehards tried to create this site, which would be like, what did they call it it was like basically oh, this kind yeah, of yeah, compendium yeah. of facts that you would you would sort of like Verit. each fact was somehow be, oh that verit exactly Amazing, that it would somehow yes. be like labeled and numbered and so you could you know anytime you made a statement you could kind of correlate it with this easily referenced compendium of facts um so yeah, that, i mean that's that's a great example right that's like a very like that that's that's from an era that assumes that you'll ha you'll still have televisual era norms in a digital world. And you, so you can just use digital technology along with televisual norms. But of course, why, why does it immediately fail? Well, because nobody trusts these guys. Everyone knows that there's this game being played. Um, and so even if it had been a great project, even if they had been completely sincere about it, which they weren't, then it still would have failed, right? And then, But then you have also get the kind of this recursive problem where everyone involved in this understands this game, how this game is played. And then they face a weird, this weird dilemma, which is this. If you stick to the televisual era norm, so let's say you're doing a fact check, right? And you have to assign, you know, from a, uh, you know, one, what is it? You know, one Pinocchio to four Pinocchios, the fact that something President Biden's uttered, which is, you know, uh, you know, not clear, you know, false or partially false, whatever, right? Well, you can, you can give it an honest assignment. And what does that do? Uh, it pisses people off on your side because you have a political side implicitly and it's fodder ammunition for the other side, right? So even if you've been completely honest and you've, you've upheld your duty as a fact checker, your duty, according to norms of journalism, it hasn't profited you at all, right? Whereas at least if you kind of, so what do you, the incentive you have is to weight your, weight your fact check by the kind of political valence 
And uh, that way you won't upset people on your side who actually subscribe to your newspaper, by the way. And you'll just upset. But what are you doing at the same time? You're actually undermining the underlying ideal of fact checking. So whatever credence that the folks on both sides of the aisle had for this enterprise, they, they now have less of it, at least on the on the opposite te- team, so to speak. Um, so there's, there's something kind of unassailable and inevitable about this logic, which I think the dis- people have kind of missed out on. Um, in I think the one thing that really affects our analysis of this change is that we are we are all already caught up in this kind of alternative reality game. Um, so it's impo- so whenever whenever you have an analysis of it, um, it will only catch on if it fits neatly into one of these existing narratives. I'll give you a concrete example from like today. Um, uh, so as you know, there was this uh, this case of this, this speech about this uh, this 10 year old girl who might have been raped and impregnated in Ohio and had to go to Indiana for an abortion. And President Biden mentioned her in a speech. And then the Washington Post, I believe it was basically found no evidence that this was true, but nonetheless had a kind of created a kind of wrote about a wrote about the difficulty of evaluating a, a fact like this. Right. Uh, Renee DeResta, who's, who's been someone who's I think she's at Stanford um, Internet Observatory. She's someone who's kind of a thinker about misinformation. She pointed out on Twitter that both sides are being highly disingenuous, right? That obviously there was, this was not a especially factually grounded case, although it did actually turn out to be true, it seems. Um, but that the people who were quoting this fact check were also being completely disingenuous, right? They were highlighting a section of it, which appeared to defend, to basically kind of throw the, throw the hands up and say, oh, we can't know if this is true or false or not. When in fact, the, that was only a small section of the bigger piece. Well, guess what? People who were, who were spouting this story as fact they got lots of engagement because it fits very neatly into narratives about abortion access and Roe v. Wade. People on the right who posted this sort of disingenuous fact check, they got lots of engagement because it fits neatly into narratives about the media and distortion and bias. And, you know, Rene DeResta's claim, which was critical of both sides, got almost no engagement. <laughs> and that's true. That, that, that kind of thing structures our entire media environment. So let's go back to the televisual era. And particularly, I think, you know, one, one thing that you do a good job of kind of recapping in the piece on Stewart, which is, you know, entitled um, How Stewart Made Tucker. And we'll definitely get into that, um, that part of the argument. But, but first of all, you know, one, one thing that people, f- I think, have had a kind of amnesia about is the... Um, the critic, you know, because because there's been this kind of again like rose tinted, backward look towards you know these earlier supposedly more stable eras of um, consensus reality. You know what's what's kind of been forgotten was this um, this very prevalent critique of you know the norms and and you know practices of television and you know what were viewed at the time as its highly distorting effects so i think we you know we touched on that a little bit in terms of all these um quintessential kind of televisual events of the 90s such as um oj and lewinsky um case and so on but you know one thing that's important I think for the at the outset of just discussing this piece on John Stewart is that he's kind of coming out of and in some ways, you know, 
picking up on and then kind of implementing a response to this um, very widespread critique, I'd say, particularly from the sort of progressive left of the sort of televisual, um, the, the kind of dominance and, and the dominant modes of television in the period. So well, what, what sort of, was that and what, what have we forgotten yeah. about that? Well, so I, I introduced, we actually introduced kind of two critiques, um, both of which carried some water, one of which is completely forgotten. So the Stuart critique is really the critique, I wouldn't necessarily say of the progressive left so much as the kind of old school institutional journalism, right? So, you know, Bill Moyers, um, you know, the, the folks at the kind of top newspapers. And what they're responding to is the fact that in the 1980s, basically, uh, television, all the television networks faced this significant financial pressure to turn uh, new, their news divisions into profit centers, right? Because of this FCC requirement um, that they air news, they had taken losses on these profit centers for many, many years. And it was fine because there was basically a monopoly, you know, an oligar uh, oligopoly in terms of the handful of major news networks. And so they have massive profits and so they can, they can afford it. Um, but after the FCC does away with the fairness doctrine, after the beginning of the rise of cable and some other kind of television innovations, they're facing increasing financial pressure. And one obvious place to, to find profit is their news channels. Um, paradoxically, this led to, because the news division has high sort of fixed costs, right? You have to have your correspondents, your anchors, at a time, you have to have you have to have people, either freelancers or correspondents, all over the world in case you have to pick up a story in Bangkok or in Moscow or in uh, you know South Africa or something, Johannesburg, and so very high fixed costs. And so paradoxically, the way that you turn a news division into a profit center is you produce a massive increase. You make much, much, much more news um, to spread that fixed cost out more. And to, to bring in more advertising dollars, and it worked, right? I think I I talk about NBC News going from a hundred million dollar loss to a two hundred million dollar, sorry, two hundred million dollar loss to hundred million dollar profit in the span of like less than ten years after GE bought the network. But the result is that it can, it changes the incentives of television news uh, substantially, and there are also some changes going on in the newspapers. But paradoxically, the newspapers come under more pressure and they consolidate. And so by this time, you still have to have a newspaper, basically, but you have a lot of one newspaper towns. And so those are basically local monopolies. And so suddenly newspapers are actually much more profitable than they have been. Um, but so the television news channels are producing a lot of news and a lot of it is not very good. And it creates an incentive to create this like ongoing momentum of the big story that will get people turning in night after night. Right. So if you're television news, you need something like the O.J. Simpson trial, Chandra Levy. Uh, Monica Lewinsky, et cetera, right? Because you want people to be, you know, just like a soap opera, right? You want people to be captivated. You want, you want them coming back night after night. You want them to watch the evening news and then see an advertisement for Dateline on the same story. And so maybe they watch Dateline that week. And so it creates kind of, and then you're also selling this stuff to magazines. You're selling it to, um, you know, you're selling footage to uh, more specialized coverage. So like, NBC launches MSNBC and CNBC, and they're all they all share news resources. Um, so you have this sort of po positive feedback loop of news coverage, but it's leading to more and more schlock, you know, and more and more dominance by a handful of small stories. 
And so if you want to tell a story that is important, but not maybe going to get the audience, it just gets buried. And that's a criticism of people like Bill Moyers. And that's a criticism of John Stewart. Um, Stewart thinks that the problem of the news is that you have is basically laziness and not taking a chance and not getting excellent people, excellent crafters and narrative telling the most important stories the best way. And that's what he sets out to do with The Daily Show and now with his new show, right, is apply all these techniques from comedy, from from, uh, you know, other kind of more creative art forms to focusing on the important stories rather than the story that's just going to get the biggest audience or contribute to this sort of televisual phenomenon. There's another theory at the time, which is uh, Kyle Lawson and the folks that kind of add busters, right? And the kind of anti, we forget the kind of anti-globalization, anti-consumerist movement of the 90s, which is really kind of all the rage. It's huge, big cultural impact in the 90s. I mean, Fight Club is a great kind of cultural artifact for this. And their theory is that the problem with the news is that it's a corporate product and that advertisers control the agenda. You know, Philip Morris and ExxonMobil buy tons of ads. And so you can't, the incentive is to not air critical coverage of these things. And um, it's not, they're not necessarily wrong, but of course what happens is that the internet destroys the advertising-based model. But their underlying attention to the incentives of the news business is, I think, really important. And I'd say that, you know, that critique does kind of the, the Kyle Lawson one, the Adbusters one does kind of, you know, which then Naomi Klein is who you mentioned is another sort of major um, figure in this, this movement, um, you know, that, that it does kind of hook into some of this early site kind of anarchic libertarian cyber utopian kind of stuff where, you know, th- there is this idea that the, the internet as it's a, Im- Imagine then is kind of this anti-corporate, you know, the space for a sort of um, anti-corporate movement to pioneer new forms of kind of peer-to-peer sharing of information and thereby bypassing all of this kind of propaganda and advertising, which, you know, the, the Adbusters slogan is like, you know, it, it, I don't remember what exactly it is, but it's has to do with like mental pollution, right? That they're, they're sort of combating the pollution of the mind by advertisement. And so the internet is conceived of as the space that can kind of bypass those problems right now. Of course, this is the internet of the, you know, the sort of, um, you know, before it became heavily commercialized. So, you know, that, that did seem more plausible at one point. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And, and there are some ways in which, you know, what they what they prophesied or hoped for did come to pass. Right. It's really hard to imagine or remember how dominant brand advertising was in the 1990s. Uh, but if you want, you know, you can find online, uh, you know, whole movies that are made of uh, of uh, brands and ads. And then there was, uh, I, you know, it's a deep lore. One of the worst movies ever made I mean, in 2012, a movie called Food Fight with uh, Charlie Sheen and Wayne Brady, Hillary Dove, Eva Ligoria, um, budget, like a $45, $65 million budget. And the way that they, they, um, they subsidize the budget, it's an animated movie, is that all of the characters are like brand mascots, right? And uh, it was never, I don't think it was ever released. Uh, it was sort of, it was so bad that it was just sort of buried. But um, one of the biggest box office bombs of all time. But um the idea that you could actually that there was that the, the brand, the brand mascot, the brand advertising had so much mental space is, again, I think it's almost impossible to remember. It's almost impossible to remember how dominant it was. 
Um, and we obviously we have ads. We actually have more ads than ever now on the internet, but they're because they're personalized. But this is another good example, right? The brand, the brand, the ad brand and ad marketing, brand marketing is really kind of an ultimate consensus reality era tool, right? You're building one national cohesive uh, idea about your brand or even a global idea about your brand. So you have a global idea about the McDonald's brand, the Coca-Cola brand. And that's just been massively replaced by personalized advertising, which is much more effective in actually getting you to buy stuff, but it doesn't result in any kind of overarching um, uh, narrative or, or unity or, or idea of the world, right? If you go on, sometimes I go look at my wife's, if I'm, you know, she's trying to show me something on her Instagram or whatever, she sees completely different ads than I do, right? And that that phenomenon of personalization leading to fragmentation is completely pervasive to the internet. So Stuart, as you just described it, you know, in a sense was kind of harking back to this, you know, whereas on one hand you have these ad busters people who were kind of you know, hooking into these cyber utopian ideas about, you know, how the internet could be this kind of space for, you know, peer-to-peer information exchange unpolluted by advertising and branding and logos and so on. Um, you know, Stuart was in a sense harking back to a, a sort of um, earlier model of broadcast journalism that he thought could be revived in some sense. Is that, is that a correct characterization? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of evidence to that effect. In fact, Stuart's, the re- reason it's actually easy to prove that Stuart is kind of pre-internet figure because his ideas about television haven't changed in 20 years, right? You can go back and you can find an interview he did with Bill Moyers in like 2002, 2003, where he talks about the problems of mass media. And it's the exact same with the exception of adding social media in uh, to what he said in a recent episode of his new TV show. Um, so his dream, and he actually he expressed this a little bit at the uh, reality to restore fear and/or sanity with Stephen Colbert in 2010. You know, he sort of sees himself as fighting for this the middle 90 percent who are t- equally turned off by the five percent extremism of the left and the right, and they're kind of, you know, the the their own media echo chambers. And what he doesn't seem to realize is that that that's a description of the 1999 broadcast audience, right? That middle 90 percent was created by television, and it no longer exists. Yeah, and I think this, you know, also um, relates to, you know, one of the things you do in this article is show the the kind of divergence between Stewart's account of what he believed he, or you know, what he believed he was doing with the Daily Show and what what its actual effects were and what he was actually in reality doing. So, I mean, one point, another point you make is that, you know, whereas he saw himself as speaking to this kind of unrepresented reasonable middle of the country you know in fact he was you know his audience was largely a sort of highly partisan um liberal one right which yeah yeah should be pretty obvious but nevertheless it it did you know so there was this divergence between what he imagined he was doing and the facts about what he who he was speaking to for the most part um but what else you know what else would you say about just um how does his own conception of his project differ from the reality of what it what it was and has been. Well, I think uh, there's a kind of inherent tension between the audience he wants to reach and the way and what he wants to tell them. Right. So he wants to be able to, he thinks it, it's a duty of journalists to 
to talk about the most important stories. A journalist can't be objective in the sense that they're always choosing what's important. And both on The Daily Show and then especially since The Daily Show, he's he has tried to put front and center the issues that he thinks are most important. But the problem is that the same economic incentives that have given him the freedom to do that had also given everyone else the freedom and ability to do that. And so all that you're really doing, you aren't actually kind of convening a national audience around these important problems that you, uh, a journalist, have discovered. You're actually just like attracting the people who, who think, who agree with you. People who agree that those are the important problems. And you really can't escape the kind of underlying incentives. And so I sort of think that there's a way in which the, the Daily Show ruined Jon Stewart, which is that because it was occurring in this sort of brief, very liminal period, because it had this unbelievable audience, um, he could he got he gained the feeling of being able to kind of direct attention to these really important issues, but he didn't understand that it was that he never had the opportunity again that the that the media landscape the media ecosystem just wouldn't permit that 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 we are no longer in a world of consensus consensus reality, um, and it also means that his kind of critiques of the rest of media have fallen fallen sort of flat. You know, if you actually listen to what he's saying in that famous interview with Paul Begala and. Uh, Tucker Carlson and Crossfire that got the show canceled. It just it's a different world, right? Nobody talks about spin and spin rooms anymore and your ability to fight sort of fake both sidesism on TV and hypocrisy. Like whatever we're dealing with, we have moved past that era. So there's a way in which Stuart sort of you know defeated himself a little bit. Plus, there, there's also the other thing I'd say is that you know he was operating at a time when everyone else on TV was, was still following kind of television era norms and they hadn't gotten used to what the internet made possible. And the best example of this, you, you can find a number of instances of, of Stuart really kind of um, very proficiently telling, using old footage to tell a story about a politician, but um, nothing beats the 2009 interview with Jim Cramer after the financial crisis where Cramer comes on and he wants to tell his story about financial journalism and Stuart just hits him with, like live on TV with uh, footage, very, very obscure footage of him being completely hypocritical or saying the opposite thing. And he's just sort of stunned by it. Um, well, nobody would be stunned by it anymore. You, you, we've all learned that this is how it works. Um, so I think there's a number of reasons why. So, you know, a lot of the explanations of why Stuart isn't funny anymore have really focused on Stuart, the person, something about his comedy, something about his politics. And they really missed the bigger picture, which is that the entire media system has changed. And the lessons that Stuart was teasing out in the late 2000s have been adopted by every, every single person in news journalism, including and especially Tucker Carlson. Yeah, so let's, um, let's cover that point because, you know, you, you tell the story of, and you mentioned just now Stuart's appearance on Crossfire, where he really kind of lays into them for embodying, you know, what he saw as the, all of the, um, negative qualities of, of television at the time. And of course, you know, Crossfire had two hosts, one liberal, one conservative. The conservative one was Tucker, right? Yep. So, um, yeah, if, you know, your, your contention is essentially that Tucker is the most um, significant sort of heir of Stewart's project today. And, you know, you, you begin with a kind of, you know, imagining Stewart you know, having a dream in which he realizes that his his vision of of media has come to fruition, and yet it's come to fruition in this figure who he, you know, presumably detests. 
So, you know, perhaps some, could you just spell out, you know, in, in what exact, what exactly does Tucker learn from Stuart and sort of in, in, and perhaps even do better than him in some respects? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, Stuart always has this kind of nostalgic vision for what journalism used to be for the old days of Walter Cronkite and Edward R. Murrow and whatnot. And that's, I think, really held back his his understanding of, of the changes that he's, he's that have under that the media environment has undergone. So what does Tucker learn from Stuart? There was a recent article in The Atlantic, which I, I thought was completely misguided, looking at kind of resentment or, or you know, Carlson's project as a kind of revenge against Stuart. I think it's much simpler than that, which is Stuart more than anybody, maybe on accident, a little bit of an accident, figured out where the incentives were going, right? So you, you don't have incentives to do original reporting. You have incentives to do very powerful narrativizing. You know, you, you succeed by building a niche audience. You build a niche audience by building a community around an underlying narrative. And you use uh, the whole gamut of tools from uh, monologues to interviews to, uh, to uh, comp- you know, compilation footage to field reporting to, to build and serve this narrative over time. And the narrative above all is the story of like what's happening in America and why is everyone else being so crazy? Um, everyone on TV has a version of a narrative of what's going on with America and why is everyone else so crazy? They're just completely different perspectives, right? And to do that creatively, it is a kind of artistic thing. You can't just, it's not just propaganda, right? You can't just say the same thing over and over every night. You have to kind of paint with, with a, uh, paint with a, an, uh, a fine brush you don't want color, you want difference, you want, you, you do want different perspectives if the underlying effect to the audience is to build a sense of community. Um, and I think Tucker is better at that than anybody, but I don't think it's qualitatively different from what Mahdi Hassan or John Oliver or Rachel Maddow are doing, adjust, adjusted for their audience. Um, someone you don't discuss, but who has an interestingly kind of parallel timeline and who I'm thinking about right now because I'm writing two things that are sort of related to him uh, is Alex Jones. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, and you know, I'm I'm curious if you have any thoughts on his career because you know, I mean, one thing is it does essentially match up um, chronologically with this kind of timeline that we've been discussing, and you know, he he's obviously another kind of innovative performer who, um, you know, who really. Uh, I think if there's one thing you can say for him, he he certainly has always grasped his the media, you know, the the medium that he's working within or the media that he's working within, um, very very clearly and and use them very powerfully. Um, so I don't know if you have any uh, absolutely thoughts on. Him. I, I don't think it's a coincidence story. that I don't think it's a coincidence that Alex Jones and um, Glenn Beck, another person I talk about a little bit, both came out of the world of like '90s radio. And you begin to see some of these incentives towards decline of advertising and the increase in value of, um, of niche audiences. And the, the way niche audiences, not niche audiences function is by subscription. I'm going to flush this. I flush this out a little bit in this article, and I'm going to flush it out more in a future essay in the series. But subscription, not just in the sense of like signing up for a monthly fee, but in the broader sense of signing on the dotted line, right? And in some way or whatever, materially supporting the the community directly whether that's through you know an actual monthly subscription whether that's through donations like there's a reason why npr is so 
wildly liberal, it's because if, who gives money to NPR are those people. Um, in Alex Jones's case, I love this model. It's like the buying vitamins on the Alex Jones, you know, buying products on the Alex Jones website, buying gold, buying vitamins. It's all it's all the same thing. It's, it's just a form of subscription. Um, and you know, I, Alex Jones is a great example because he, he's he has a different audience than surely than like a Rachel Maddow, but it's the same underlying principle. It's, he's very creative in how he approaches it. It's very entertaining day in and day out. He builds a really loyal subscription base, and there's a lot more money in it. Frankly, this is the thing: is there's a lot more because as advertising revenue decreases and as cable subscriptions decrease, there's a lot more money in this approach uh, than uh, than television, and that's only going to increase. And then Glenn Beck's an interesting case. So in 2011 or so. Glenn Beck left Fox News almost at the peak of his his height uh, of his sort of popularity there to start up his own channel. And everyone said he was crazy to do this. Um, and he did lose a lot of audience. Right. He, he had a, one of the biggest shows on TV. And with, when he went started up the blaze, he's worked over many years to build up an, a subscription base of like, you know, an Axios article from a couple of years ago suggested 450,000. So 450,000 on an, you know, it's a lot smaller than the several, you know, 10 times smaller than the, the nightly viewership of his show on Fox. But each one of those 450,000 people is paying $102 a year. So you're looking at $45 million in annual revenue for a company that he owns 100% of or a huge stake in. So actually, from a financial standpoint, having a much smaller but more uh, more loyal audience is much more lucrative. And that that's one of the, again, th- that's one of the kind of brass tax reasons why we're, we're pushing away from cons- consensus reality towards ARGs. And there's another, here's, a, here's another example of this, which I love, which is like very kind of peculiar, but people don't realize I'm a Kanye West fan. People might not know that Kanye West p- released an album recently, Donda 2. The reason they don't know is that he refused to put it on any kind of streaming platform, even to sell it directly. He would only sell it through uh, with this little um, uh, device. Oh, I'm going to kill me that I didn't. Uh, the stem player, this little device he created with Kino computing that allows you to kind of lo- do a kind of live remix of, of what you're listening to. It's sort of an MP3 player slash live remixing tool. And his reasoning was basically that he could sell, he could make more revenue selling the, this device, selling Donda 2 on a $200 device than he could selling it, streaming it or selling it directly, right? And if you look at the numbers, it actually makes sense. Having a, a having an audience, a much smaller audience that will pay two hundred dollars for the album, basically, is much is more lucrative today than a very large audience that would pay a smaller amount. And that kind of change in incentives away from ma- like ma- mass audiences towards niche audiences is has occurred across our entire society. So it it seems um, you know it would be. <laughs> it's it's both uh, opening a big can of worms, but also it seems remiss not to uh, mention uh, Donald Trump and all of this. You of know, course. he. <laughs> so on one hand, you know, something that's occurred to me in in reading your work and and talking to you now is, um, you know, one thing he does, of course, is kind of put the the media apparatus that you know once produced. Uh, consensus reality kind of on life support right so you know cnn is very clear that you know it's the best thing for business that's ever happened to them 
Um, you know, the New York Times and Washington Post see huge increases in subscription. And again, it, it feeds back into this idea, which I think, again, you know, the, we could say the January 6th hearings may be a kind of last stand of all of this, right? Where you have people saying, oh, it's your civic duty to, to tune in. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, so it, it, one of the ironic things he did, and I mean, there are many ironies around this, right? He's, of course, a man of, of tele, you know, of the sort of televisual era who somehow kind of, you know, manages to have a, a remarkable second life, um, primarily on Twitter. But, you know, he, uh, so, you know, one thing he does though is kind of by spelling out the, the, the stakes of the decline of consensus reality in a certain way that was very shocking to um, a certain sector of the population, he, again, kind of as a byproduct of his rise, of his political rise, you know, puts all of these consensus reality generating entities on life support. And yet it's also in a sense, the, 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 the debt, the final kind of nail in their coffin, because the way that he does that, or, or the way that, you know, this situation is brought about ensures that they essentially just um, fall into the same model you've been describing. Right. And, and become just another, um, another, you know, one of these bespoke realities you can sort of choose to buy into, you know, rather than the, the, um, and, and so of course the whole, you know, fake news where he, on one hand, sort of, um, you know, I mean, where, where basically he, his rise is attributed to this phenomenon of fake news, which is a phrase originally, um, you know, generated to, to describe the, the nefarious effects of the collapse of this consensus reality producing media system. But then he immediately and very successfully and brilliantly appropriates the term and essentially applies it, you know, right back at the people who are throwing it at him. And he captures something that's very real and true in doing that. Well, uh, do you know how John Stewart was introduced on Crossfire in 2004? Um, no. He was described as the most trusted name in fake news. Right, right. I mean, I think Stewart's a huge part of this. I mean, the the implicit message of The Daily Show is that all news is fake news, right? All news is subject to this sort of spin and hackery. Um, And, you know, I think one of the reasons Donald Trump is so successful is he comes and he says it, right? And not only does he say it, but he sort of lives it. A lot of other Republican politicians are willing to be critical of the media, but they weren't willing to truly act as if the media had no power over them. Um, and, you know, you're, you're the Girardian expert here, but there's this amazing kind of mimetic activity around Stuart in 20 or sorry, around John, uh, Trump in 2016, which is uh, the, you know, the, the people who are demanding coverage of Trump are not just Republicans, they're also Democrats, right? They think he's so ridiculous, he's so absurd that they are eager to, to read more. And they, they, the more that they re- work themselves into a frenzy about him, the more demand there is for coverage and the more that influences the incentives of, of like the New York Times and um, uh, the Washington Post. I think it's really interesting reading the, Chris, the Steele dossier as, like a, as a text, like leaving aside any of its actual claims, just looking at it as a text. It's interesting that uh, it associates this sort of, these sort of lurid claims with a kind of like political failure. Like if this gets out there, this will surely sink him. And it just seems like a very televisual idea. I mean, it's easy to say that now, I guess, when Trump so so bombastically sort of uh, took us over the, the, the cliff, the power of these media norms. But 
Um, I mean, the easiest way of understanding Hillary Clinton's failure in 2016 was that she was running a kind of televisual campaign where she was assuming she was banking on the enduring power of the media to shape the narrative, the enduring power of the media to hold politicians accountable to certain norms of behavior. Um, and it wasn't that the media wasn't willing to do that, like some people at her camp thought, is that they lost the power to do that in a, in a real way. Another interesting uh, document from around that period is, do you remember, I, I think it's the very first episode of Black Mirror. Uh-huh, yeah, Which involves I do. The, the prime minister and the pig. Yes. I mean, so, I don't know, I, it, it just kind of occurred to me that, you know, it's another of these kind of uh, documents of that period, because part of what's significant about it is that, um, you know, the, the, okay, so the, the basic plot line for those who haven't seen it is that, you know, essentially this, we only discover this at the end, but this kind of, um, I suppose, sort of, you know, maybe ad busters like sort of conceptual artist who wants to um, who wants to essentially produce this events that will um, that will bring down the not not you know that will bring down the political establishment through this kind of sheer sheer force of humiliation, right? Is that essentially he performs this kidnapping and then forces the prime minister to <laughs> have sex with a pig on uh, to, you know on live broadcast television, right? And so the idea is that this um, will somehow um, you know, we'll, we'll somehow just uh, shock people into recognizing, you know, the, the true, the true uh, you know, lies and hideousness of, of the political establishment or something like that. Right. So but then, of course, the interesting thing that happens at the end is that we see, you know, basically the prime minister does, you know, engages in this totally abject and horrifying act. Um, you know, people go to the pubs to watch it on TV but and everybody actually finds it kind of funny and um and but then you know it sort of fast forwards a year and it turns out that basically his approval ratings are around the same as they were before so in fact as far as i could tell the whole um takeaway of this episode is that this artist was operating from this older paradigm that no longer matters and that you know, perhaps we could identify this with the televisual paradigm, but, you know, it seemed like the ultimate victim of the, the, um, of this whole project was the, the artist who conceived of it, who thought of himself as this great radical who was going to expose the monstrous truth of, of power and instead is proven to be completely irrelevant. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And there's this weird, you know, involution you get where, you know, there's an old saying, which I think about a lot, which is, you know, if, if it's on TV, if it's on the television, it's a television show. There's a similar thing we might say about the Internet, right? Like it, it transforms everything, even the, I mean, th there is nothing so horrifying that it can't be turned into point scoring on social media in, in one of these alternative reality games. And we know this because we do it all the time. Um, you know, there's been frothy discourse for today about the kind of Uvalde shooting and some of the horrifying footage that's been released from that. Um, and, you know, funnily enough, if you go back to the very beginning of the televisual era, some of the more serious thinker people who are concerned about it talk about it in just these terms, that by putting everything, everything of all importance into the kind of context of TV, that it will reduce everything to a television show. And I think we see that now with, you know, everything is reduced to a meme, to a tweet. There's nothing that can't be reduced to a meme or a tweet. Um, 
that's just, that's just how media operates. And uh, you know, to put on my McLoonian hat, you know, our inattention to the, the operations of media is a, a, to a large extent responsible for why we're kind of in this conceptual analytical mess. So let's um, wrap up here, but perhaps uh, we could end with a sort of preview of where the series is is going to be heading in the in the next uh, installments. Um, sure. You know, if you know, feel free to share as much or as little of that as as you would like. But I uh, just thought it'd be a nice way to close things out. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm trying to kind of complete this uh, first attempt at a kind of comprehensive picture of you know, after reality, um, as it were. So the, ne- the next installment will be a kind of political economy analysis of the fact. I'm thinking about the fact as a kind of object of a certain kind of political economy and what happens when that radically changes with, uh, with the rise of information and communications technology. So how we get from, how we get from the facts to data and all the implications of that idea. Um, and then future installments will kind of ask the question of why do we want, if, if the underlying thing is the internet is a, tool for uh is a search engine for connecting people to the narratives and realities they most want to be a part of then what's shaping the realities we want to be a part of and so looking at one i'll have an essay on conspiracy theories and kind of reconceptualizing conspiracy theories in the light of uh, actual um they rapid the massive increase in actual secret government activity which i think is a under massively misunderstood part of the phenomenon uh, and then looking at kind of our national political narratives. And then uh, the biggest picture is thinking about trying to see through the veil of this invisible medium and thinking about um, how human culture will operate in a world in which we're all uh, plugged into and reshaped by um, digital technology. So it's an ambitious project. Uh, and I'm, I have to give a shout out here to Ari Schulman and the amazing editors of the Atlantis who have, have believed in the project who have done amazing editorial work uh, and um, I really owe it all to them. And I hope that it, the whole, whole thing makes an impact. I hope so too. And uh, yeah, I just encourage people to read it and also subscribe to the new Atlantis for immediate access to um, both the most recent piece on, on John Stewart, which um, I believe is still paywalled at this point and is, uh, you know, really one of the best, honestly, one of the best things I've read and, in the past couple of years. So, uh, it's, it's really, um, and it, <laughs> it was kind of amazing having kind of lived through all of that to, uh, be taken back through it and reminded of various things that I forgot, but also, you know, the, the way it's, it's used to, um, you know, again, provide this kind of deeper historical account of how we got to, uh, the, the situation we're in now. So yeah, really, really great stuff. Um, Please everyone check it out and thanks for uh, thanks for joining me and hope perhaps we can follow up with another conversation, you know, when the later installments uh, appear. Absolutely. And I'm also available anytime to talk about uh, Dan Brown, the most important yes. misunderstood novelist of the last 20 years. Yeah, that that would be great. I mean, you said that you, you may touch on that in the conspiracy uh, conspiracy installment is that yeah especially you found evocative your discussion of the early dan brown oeuvre and the weird sort of inside out ideological function of thriller novels as sort of disclosers yet diffusers of not secret knowledge yeah so i mean i'm i'm working on a um 
on some writing on this subject myself on, on Brown and also will ultimately make two more episodes in the podcast series. On yes. You're only Brown's halfway through. Novels. So yeah, I've still got a few more to go, but um, yeah, I'm always happy to, to uh, talk to others who share this uh, generally scorned uh, enthusiasm. of mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, So yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, thanks for having me, Jeff.